Imagine looking into the window of your favorite clothing store and seeing the hottest new fashions just lying there in a heap. You can't picture how they'd look on you the way you can when those stylish tops and bottoms are put on a mannequin. That's what good storytelling does for facts, statistics, and otherwise dry information. It gives it good bones, and it lets you connect with your listeners on a deeper level. Something I hope we're doing here on The Unlovely Truth. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety tips we can find there. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because I'm going to give you a practical step to do just that. This is Season 3, Episode 49. We're going to focus on just one story for the entire month of December, and it's a very appropriate one. The Santa Claus Bank Robbery by the late A.C. Green, a prominent Texas journalist and author. My guest this week is Lawrence Yun, host of the Myth Pilgrim podcast, and he's going to talk with me about the power of storytelling. But first, let's investigate how this particular story began. This book is written in the style of my very favorite type of true crime story. It reads like a novel, but you can also tell that it's so well-researched that you feel really confident in the presentation of the facts that it gives. And that is an important consideration. I once worked a cold case that had a book written about it, and we found that it had numerous factual errors. The Santa Claus bank robbery does contain a good bit of dialogue some that was recreated from interviews and newspaper accounts of the robbery and its aftermath, and I'm sure some that was just created in the mind of the author. He does call it a nonfiction novel, which seems a little contradictory, but at least you do know what you're going to get when you decide whether or not you want to read it. I do highly recommend it, and I think you'll quickly see why. The action begins with four men driving late on a December night from Wichita Falls, Texas, to the smaller town of Cisco. Their aim? To rob a bank. It was December 23rd, 1927, and three ex-cons, along with a relative, drove late in the night while the ringleader, 24-year-old Marshall Ratliff, sang the old hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. You'll want to remember that. His companions were Louis Davis, Henry Helms, and Robert Hill, who was driving the stolen Buick. Ratliff had just recently been released from prison after serving time for another bank robbery, which had apparently taught him no valuable lessons about good behavior. He knew Helms and Hill from prison, and Louis Davis was a relative of Henry Helms. He had never been in trouble with the law before, but trouble was on his way for all of them. Each man was excited to make a big haul of cash, but they were nervous as well. The nerves went out as they started drinking before they took off for the robbery. That was not going to turn out to be a very good idea. Ratliff had been staying at a boarding house, and he had talked the woman who ran it into loaning him a Santa Claus suit that she was making for the holiday. For some unknown reason, he thought that that would be a good disguise, rather than something that would really make him stick out like a sore thumb. Can you just imagine being in the middle of town with a bunch of kids running around right before Christmas, and here comes a guy in a Santa Claus suit? The four men were all armed, and Louis Davis was nervous about the idea of having to shoot anybody. Ratliff reassured him that they didn't plan to fire a single shot. 
I'm not sure if he knew when he made that promise that local citizens probably wouldn't have any problem taking shots at them. The Texas State Bankers Association had offered $5,000 to anyone who killed a bank robber while they were in the midst of robbing a bank. Not surprisingly, this harebrained idea led to some less scrupulous citizens tricking unsuspecting people saying, hey, help me catch a bank robber, only to pretend that those people were the robbers and shooting them dead so that they could get the reward. Ironically, this reward did not do a thing to slow down the pace of actual robberies. A paved alley ran behind the bank they had chosen to rob, and it was often used by pedestrians and people who needed a quick place to park. The four robbers saw it as a good place for a quick getaway. So right after noon on the 23rd of December, this fake Santa Claus walked into the Cisco, Texas First National Bank. Unlike the real Santa, he was ready to take, not to give. We're going to learn more about the robbery next week, but don't go anywhere because in just a minute, we're going to talk about the power of story, even true crime stories, with this week's guest. I hope you've had a chance to read my book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb, which is available on Amazon. I'm accepting bookings for 2023 to come to churches, schools, and businesses to train leaders, parents, and students about how to keep ourselves and our communities safer. Email me at lori at theunlovelytruth.com. That's L-O-R-I at theunlovelytruth.com if you want to know more. Now let's hear from Lawrence Yun, host of the Myth Pilgrim podcast. Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for joining us today because I'm just fascinated by what you do on the Myth Pilgrim. I was looking over your website and I loved how you explain that your podcast explores how these popular myths, fairy tales, stories, they can nourish our spiritual journey. And so give us a little fuller understanding of what you mean by that. Oh, well, well, first of all, thanks for having me on The Unlovely Truth. Laurie, it's a privilege to be chatting to you again this morning. Well, my morning here in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, so The Myth Pilgrim really is coming from a worldview and a belief that storytelling is intrinsic to the Christian gospel. It's not something sort of optional extra. You know, it really is the way in which the Lord has has chosen to reveal who he is and also who we are. And what I'm doing on The Myth Pilgrim is having a look at the most timeless stories in our culture and beyond our sort of the Western culture. So we're talking about the myths and the fairy tales. These are the stories that kind of transcend time and, and culture and they're passed on over and over again. And my interest is why are these stories still with us? Why are they resonating so much with our culture? Especially when they contain so much contents of the supernatural and magic and kind of fantasy elements. You know, aren't we over that? Aren't we a very kind of rationalistic, scientific sort of era? And it's like, well, these stories are communicating something of timeless truth. In the same way as the gospel, if, if Jesus and the Bible is what it reveals it is and what we believe as Christians, then the Bible is also revealing timeless truths and that will always be able to, to reach and to inspire and to educate us human beings, humanity for all time. So the vision behind the Myth Pilgrim, this podcast, is, is a belief, an intrinsic belief that I've always known that if a story is timeless, so if a story like a, a myth or a fairy tale, which we classify as the timeless stories in, in, in our culture, if they're timeless, it's because it's resonating with something of the grand story of Christianity. 
because Christianity, if it is legit, and you and I both agree it is, the story stamped out in the Bible that transcends just one era, one culture, it really lasts all of humanity, all of time. It must contain these myths and fairy tales. If they're also timeless, there must be some echo of the same truths about who we are, the nature of good and evil. What's our purpose here? You know, is there such thing as destiny? What does evil look like in the human heart? These are the same questions our myths and fairy tales, our Harry Potters and Lord of the Rings kind of wrestles with. It's the same. The Bible is wrestling with these questions all the time and also providing us a way in which to engage with these questions through the medium of story. And I've always found it fascinating that the greatest storyteller, the greatest teacher that ever lived was God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And not only did he tell compelling stories to teach the most complicated, or for us, (laughs) the most complicated, you know, difficult to discern truths, but his entire life himself as a person, as God becoming man on this earth was actually meant to be a story. So the drama of the incarnation of being born as an infant, you know, we're about three weeks away from Christmas, you know, as we record this episode, the drama from that to his hidden life, you know, 30 years in Nazareth and then his public ministry and the drama around that, you know, upsetting the the, the kind of the established order at the time. And then, of course, his passion, death and resurrection. It's like his very life is meant to be a story that teaches and inspires us what it means to live our lives. So not only was Jesus a storyteller, his life was a story. And therefore, when we look at the Gospels, there's something intrinsic about how do we understand and relate to ourselves and God of this universe is through story. That's so fascinating to me because, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with the true crime stories. Where do we pull out those larger elements like you were saying, the struggle of good versus evil and all that? And as I listened to some of your episodes, I was particularly fascinated by the one on Cinderella because I just loved how you showed that story being so consistent really to our story as it relates to Jesus being our prince. Do you think that taking stories like that that are, you know, we're in kind of what they call this post-Christian culture, not everybody has the biblical literacy that, that we used to. Do you think taking stories that that are more universally known, like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, and and some of the others, and using them to share the gospel, do you think that that is kind of an outreach method that maybe we're not taking advantage of the way we should? Well, it's it's a really good question, Laurie, and I'm personally fascinated by it, so much so that I wrote my minor thesis on myths, fairy tales, and the new evangelization. Even though we live in, like you said, a post-Christian society, some would even say a post-Christendom society where Christianity is the, the Christian worldview is the dominant meta-narrative, we never actually graduate in some ways from truth. And the human soul made in the image and likeness of God will always be reaching out for and trying to attain and understand truth. And if it's not getting it through the churches, and if it's not getting it through, you know, the, the we call it the meta-narrative, the great story that once formed our Western culture, it will reach and search for it through other stories and, and continue to almost find resonance. I've always found it interesting that around the time that Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, pronounced the great statement, God is dead, was around the same time also that the, what we call the classical fairy tales became very popularized, you know, through Hans Christian Andersen and the Grimm Brothers. That was when these the great Cinderellas and Beauty and the Beast started getting collated from all these different cultures and from all around the world. 
becoming popularized in in households, not just for children, but just for families as well, you know, um, and retellings of these stories became very popular. And if you look at the example of Cinderella, you can, you can see why, because somehow maybe is it true that intuitively within the human condition, we know that we are a bit like Cinderella. We are born with incredible, insurmountable dignity. We're not just merely atoms. We're not just made on this earth by chance, but at the same time, we've been covered over by ashes. Our dignity has been smothered. And this is the beauty and the beast theme as well, right? You know, the kind of, we are prince, we are royalty, but we've been covered over by, by sin, you know, cursed as it were by sin. And yet it takes someone else, it takes in Cinderella, the prince to come out and recognize this dignity within our protagonist, you and I, and to draw us out from that realm of sin, out of the realm of ashes, you know, the, the kind of symbolized by the step family, you know, and, and the evil stepmother and, and the vices of that family and the cat called Lucifer, you know, it's to draw us out of that in order to recover and to find our, our real dignity in the kingdom we were always made for. And the prince will stop at no length in order to find his beloved, find that, that dignity that even she may not recognize Cinderella within herself. And I look at a story like that. I'm like, is that just wishful thinking? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But the fact is this wishful thinking story has been told countless number of times across. There's a Chinese version of Cinderella. You know, there's the frog prince, there's Phantom of the Opera. It seems to be resonating. Maybe it's something we're yearning for. I do get excited about this stuff. For our culture, I kind of go, hey, you know this story that you love and celebrate? Have you considered that it could actually be true? Not in terms of factually, like historically, but true as in what it stirs up within you as you read the story, what it stirs up within kids as they read the story. What if it's true? There is a prince who's actually that enamored with you that he will go to whatever length to find you, to restore you to your dignity. That's so fascinating to me that you brought up the idea that a lot of these stories are cross-cultural. When you dig into, you know, different countries, different cultures, their stories, there are so many similarities. And so it makes me wonder, you know, you hear about the idea that we all have a God-shaped hole in our soul. So no matter what we try to fill it with, the only thing that will truly fit is God. And so it makes me wonder if that kind of explains those similarities that no matter what culture you're a part of, even when we seem so different sometimes, we all have that same yearning. Mm. And it it comes out in the stories that we tell. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of my great heroes, C.S. Lewis, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with, a great storyteller in his own right, also one of the greatest evangelizers, I would say, in the 20th century and beyond. His sort of conversion journey was this understanding, was this arrival at the fact that Jesus Christ is the myth that became real. Now, what do we mean by that? What do you mean the myth that became real? A myth or a fairy tale is often can be used interchangeably. It's the distilling of the greatest truths into a story that a culture can live out of, right? Then the yearning for this truth, which we now as Christians believe is Christ. Christ is the truth become flesh. Then all the great myths and fairy tales, according to C.S. Lewis, were all actually pointing, no matter what culture you come from, we're all pointing at and preparing the way for the real truth, you know, coming, the real story, the real myth that became, entered into human history and took on flesh. And yet he goes, it never ceases to become a myth as well. Not myth as in, if you eat this and this, you'll be prevented from this sickness. No, myth as in a timeless story that will always remain true. 
that would be a, a more accurate and more probably academic definition of a myth. But it's just fascinating how even after the time of Christ, all the myths and legends that have been, you know, we think of in the West, think of something like the, the Arthurian legends, right? Think of even in our modern times, Lord Lucas bringing us back to Star Wars and then the Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. All of these are in some ways derivatives of the one myth that became real. One of Lewis's objections to Christianity at first and why he was such a hardened atheist was he's like, Christianity is just one of many myths. You know, there's been the Egyptian myths of the dying and rising gods. There's been Odin almost crucified on a tree, pharaohs being God. These are all, why is Christianity any different? And he wrestled with this until he realized that all of these ancient stories across so many different cultures were actually, well, you can say divine providence's way of stirring up the yearning for and preparing us to receive the myth that became real. So Jesus Christ is not just one of many other myths, the story of Jesus Christ. Rather, it is the fulfillment and the culmination of all the ancient myths and all the other great stories and, and myths and fairy tales that flowed after the time of Christ are merely derivatives and repackaging of that one story. Uh, and so this is why C.S. Lewis is sort of famous for saying Christianity or Jesus Christ is the myth that became real without ever ceasing to become a myth. Ah, that's deep. Oh, I'm going to have to stop and think about that one for a while, but I love it. And I'm going to pick your brain here just a little bit because, you know, on my podcast and as I write, I try to become a better and better storyteller. And because you've studied so many stories and myths and fairy tales, I'm guessing that you have seen patterns and you can recognize what within a story really makes it have an impact on an audience. So as we're all trying to use these stories to kind of bridge a gap with our unchurched friends, to be able to talk to them about Jesus, what kind of tips would you give us so that we can all become better storytellers? You know, one of the great resonances I find with the podcast you're doing on The Unlovely Truth, Laurie, is you're willing to go to the dark places to explore the parts of the human psyche of our own mind, our own, even our collective, you know, kind of shadow as a culture and to bring the gospel there or to actually explore where is God? What is the motive? What is the truth behind what drives the human person? And, you know, we talk about when a man walks into a brothel, what he's really searching for is God. That's a quote from GK Chesterton. A great tip, I suppose, in our work of bringing the gospel to our culture is to tell stories and to draw people's attention to stories that are willing to go to the deep, dark places. Now, this is a model set out for us by the Bible itself, right? The Bible's willing to go into those scandalous places of, of you know, murder, of jealousy, of rape, incest, genocide even, and to wrestle with the question, where is a good God? present in the midst of the most innocent of innocents being slain and, you know, crucified and tortured on a cross, you know, with his mother watching on. There is no shying away from evil in the Bible. And in the stories we tell, it doesn't mean we, we go into all the in explicit details, but the question, why Christianity is the story that will save and will inspire forever and ever, amen, is precisely because we believe in Professor God who is willing to go into those dark places and the gospel actually has its seed planted in the dark places. And that's where hope comes from, right? And so the more we get in touch with the truth of our own condition, our own brokenness, you know, we often talk about God as love, and that's certainly true in, in, in a Christian sense. 
God is also the truth, right? So God is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, when we get in touch with truth of our propensity for evil, for malice, for danger, but also for redemption, for bravery, for honor, then we're in touch with the things of God. And I think that's what both our podcasts recognize, you know, both the unlovely truth and the myth film recognize is that by being in touch with almost swimming in the truth of the fact that you and I, like say, when it comes to crime, you and I, given the right or wrong circumstances, we could commit those things too. Do we recognize that yes. we are that broken? Do we recognize that, well, despite what our, what's in our heart, God loves us and can hold us and can restore and redeem us? And I think when stories like today, the ones that we celebrate, when it dares to go to those places and yet bring the message of redemption, we've got a real powerful force because we're actually echoing the biblical sentiment. What I morally disagree with, I won't name examples in case I scandalize any listeners, what I morally disagree with with a lot of storytelling today is it explores the brokenness of the human condition, but then leaves you there. No redemption, no sense of hope. And I think that that's sort of, it's sort of good in the sense that, okay, this is the, this is the human condition, this is a dysfunctional society. But at the same time, it's not the gospel unless it also has a resurrection, right? Now, whether that resurrection is glorious, like lights and bells and smells, you know, not talking about that, but even the ability to recognize God in the midst of my hellish brokenness, darkness is in some ways mysteriously a, re a redemption moment, a resurrection moment, to recognize God in the midst of our pain. But when society stories, you know, there are some series on Netflix now that don't really bring that, I would kind of go, is that really redemptive? Is that really the gospel? I agree so, so wholeheartedly with you because it really is about finding some common ground. And like you said, the common ground can almost be a little bit theoretical in that when you mentioned, you know, we all fear being victims. I'm not sure we fear enough the fact that we all could be perpetrators. And so just sharing that we're all broken. I'm not somebody that has it all together telling you who I think is broken what you need to do. It's we're both like this. But thankfully, like you said, I've got that hope and let me share it with you. You know, absolutely. <laughs> Out of the blue, one of my most popular episodes on The Myth Pilgrim was one that caught me by surprise. It was about Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader. Those of you know a little bit about Star Wars. So I did an episode about what Anakin Skywalker could have learned from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Now, in the Catholic tradition, St. Ignatius is, is a very good a teacher on discernment and recognizing the voice of the good spirit and recognizing the voice of the bad spirit. And this whole episode was talking about how Anakin pretty much listened to the voice of the bad spirit in the Star Wars universe, it was the voice of Emperor Palpatine, but how it's it's almost like the episode's about what not to do <laughs> if you want to follow the voice <laughs> of the Good Shepherd of God. But what surprised me was that people were like, you know what, I really resonate with Anakin Skywalker, even though he's the bad guy and he's the he's the annoying, whiny twerp, you know, who falls to the dark side and we're like, oh yeah, well, it's not very wise. Actually, people found real connection with the fact that he is the bad guy, but there was a connection. And they're like, I learned a lot from Anakin what not to do. And then people started asking about, well, what kind of books can I read to equip myself to recognize the voice of the bad spirit and to instead listen to the voice of Obi-Wan, the good spirit? That was just fascinating. I, I kind of caught me by surprise. And I remember then following like in, in a Bible study sort of in session I did with some young people was like in the gospel scene where Jesus is having a go with the Pharisees, jump inside the feet of the Pharisees. Let's be the bad guy. How antagonistic would Jesus have appeared? And would you react to Jesus the same way if you invited, 
you know, this guest into your house and he starts insulting everything about you and your household, <laughs> you would you would also be like, oh, hang on, I'll just start. I maybe not want to kill him, but you'd be like, hey, who is this guy? And, you know, how dare he? So I think there is something powerful and insightful, Laurie, as we all identify ourselves as the victim and those of which bad things happen, but also jump inside the shoes of the perpetrator, the bad guy, because we all have that in us. And that's part of the gospel is recognizing we are the sinner in need of redemption. Otherwise, what do we need redemption from? You know, so why do we need a savior? Excellent point. Excellent point. And if you're interested in the whole idea of what these stories can teach us from a standpoint of what not to do, join the membership zone because I'll be talking to Lawrence there and we'll do a little bit more of that. But before we leave you here, I've put a link to your website in the show notes. So I want everybody to go check out everything that you do, listen to your awesome podcast. And you have to tell me about the episode where you compare the life circumstances of Harry Potter with Jesus and how he taught in the Beatitudes. Now, how do you come up with with ideas, these linkages? Where does that come from? Good question, Laurie. I know that before I write an episode, it's been percolating in my head for a very, very long time. Look, I'll just answer it simply. As a kid, I have intuitively known, even reading Harry Potter for the first time, that Harry was very much a Christ archetype, you know, in the way he he ultimately, you know, we talk about Harry Potter universe, right? Love is ultimately what destroys evil. And that's that's completely Christian. But also his humility, his his nothingness. A bit like Christ, this nobody from nowhere, out of the blue, this underdog with a band of small friends and with armed, not so much with good magic or definitely not bad magic, but armed with the virtues, destroyed the evil of evil, Voldemort. So I kind of go, well, if if Harry, if I know in my gut <laughs> that Harry is a Christ archetype, it makes sense then that he would exemplify the very acts of a Christ follower. Now, we know from my theology training that, that the Beatitudes are actually the exemplar touchstones or, or kind of yardstick for whether or not a person is following and living the life of Christ is to look at the, at the Beatitudes. So I naturally made that link, you know, by kind of going, if, if Harry is a Christ architect, it makes sense he displays some, if not all, of the Beatitudes. And that's where that episode came from, was reflecting on, oh, what does poverty of spirit mean? You know, what does meek mean? And kind of naturally making that link with the Harry character, which is not hard to do at all, because he is very much a Christ figure. So much for all of us to think about. So seriously, everybody, go check out the website, listen to some of these episodes, especially the ones about your favorite stories, because you will find plenty that you're very, very familiar with. So thank you again, Lawrence, for joining us today and giving us so many great things to be thinking about. Oh, my pleasure. My my privilege as well, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me again. Our Bible verse for this week is Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. In this chapter, Hosea is pointing out Israel's problems with immorality and idolatry. The people weren't following the ways of God, and the community was suffering because of it. The boundaries of good behavior were being trampled, and it just led to more and more violence. Violence that culminated in murder. I've seen this as a volunteer in jail ministry. Once people get into that downward cycle of criminal behavior, it can be hard for them to turn it around. We try to show them that there is another way and that God can help them truly change their lives if they want to. 
So that is what leads to my practical action step for this week. It is so rewarding to volunteer in a jail ministry. And so I want to encourage all of you to see where you can volunteer at your local jail, maybe a work center, so that you can give hope to people that really need it. It truly is a way to be a person of impact in your community. When you stop and think about it, from a very, very practical standpoint, we want people coming out of jail better equipped to handle life than they were when they went in. If you think that God's laying that on your heart and you don't know where to start, you can contact me and I will be happy to get you pointed in the right direction. If you like this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. You will not want to miss the information that my amazing guests have given me over the last nearly three years. I also want to ask you to give me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help more people discover The Unlovely Truth. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 